Badly Tarot podcast in which everyone is a disaster and we're all realizing that now. I mean, maybe, dear listener, you already knew that, but we have had a morning. We have. So this is our second attempt at recording. <laughs> we got 25 <sighs> minutes into it before realizing that it yes. wasn't going to work. <laughs> yes. But nevertheless, we're ordering us for a new microphone and it'll be fine. Everything's fine. We're fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. We're fine. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess we maybe should just get started and then we could have our really adorable portrait stuff be part of our announcements section, unless you just want to talk about it. Sure. Now, now let's get the book over with while it's still fresher in my mind than it was like. Yeah, so so. right now Esther is using, right now I see Esther's hand mostly because (laughs) we are video chatting via her phone and then she's having to use her internal laptop mic to record. So she does not have access to the book that we're reading today. Good luck, everybody. This is going to be a doozy. <laughs> this is going to... Hey, if you like us, this will be fine. If you're only here for the tarot content, you're going to fully hate it. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's just... We're going to try our best. And now both of us are sweating. We're sweating. Not only because I'm so nervous now because everything has gone haywire, but also because I have 14 million candles and my puppy has decided that she's going to be the noisiest little thing in the world right now. So... <laughs> Welcome to the Wildly Terror Podcast, where everything's wild. Welcome to the Wildly Terror Podcast. Yeah, the wildest of the Wildly Terror variations is happening right now. There's like an actual zoo that Esther's dealing with in addition to her laptop stuff. Anyway, so as promised, this week we are talking about the death of Mrs. Westaway by Ruth Ware. Yay! And I'm so excited because this book came out in 2018. Uh, People have been suggesting it to us since 2018. And because we're stubborn buttheads, (laughs) we refused to read it for a really long time because everyone told us we'd like it. But this is like probably the most recommended tarot and fiction book that comes up whenever people ask about tarot and fiction. Yeah. Um, And Ruth fucking nailed it. Yeah. She did a super good job with tarot. So Ruth Ware is also the writer of The Woman in Cabin 10, In a Dark, Dark Wood, and The Lion Game. She lives in Sussex, which is on the south coast of England. God, you guys are missing out on some really, really good, stupid (laughs) idiot us not understanding geography because that all happened in the first take of this. So now we get to pretend that we've always known that Penzance was a place. And that it isn't that our only reference for that location relates to a musical the play. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Frasier. Or Frasier, in my case. <laughs> oh. So, anyway, ah, uh, I don't even know, Esther. You're going to get like. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I just need to power through. Okay, so <laughs> the book uh, came out like two years ago. It is a thriller. There's a central mystery. And basically, the first 60 pages are a lot of like setting up this girl's experience. So instead of going through kind of what that all is, we'll focus on the tarot. And I'll just give a little spiel about what her life up to this point has been. Good. So <laughs> our main character is named Harriet. She goes by Hal, which, by the way, is the cutest nickname in the entire world. See, I had a neighbor named Hal, and so every time it said Hal, I was like thinking of like an old 87-year-old man. Yeah, <laughs> I have a second, my mom's cousin, I have my one of my mom's cousins is named Hal, 
And it's like always been a dude name to me. Actually, I think my great grandpa's name was Hal too. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) it's always been a dude's name, but it's such a cute girl name. And it also kind of reminded me of the parent trap because I'm pretty sure that one of Lindsay Lohan's characters goes by Hal. It's like short for something else in that movie. Did you ever watch? I watched the, like the old version of the parent trap. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) That was the approved one that the Lindsay Lohan version. She was too much of a brat. So we weren't allowed to. Was that one of the parameters? It wasn't just like things being yeah, too oh, no. suggestive. It we was couldn't, also if somebody was just being a shithead. Yeah, we couldn't watch the Rugrats because the Rugrats kids were too bratty. They were bad examples. So we couldn't watch the Rugrats. Oh, my goodness. I guess my parents didn't like it when we watched uh, Care Bears because the character Screechy was too screechy. <laughs> <laughs> and then also they didn't. My mom didn't love Clarissa Explains It All because Clarissa is so mean to her redheaded brother. And I am an older sister with a redheaded oh. brother. That kind of makes sense. I still watched it because I loved it so much, but I just had to be really careful to not be mean to my brother right after or else it was too (laughs) transparent. But anyway, so our main character, Hal. (laughs) Hal lives in Brighton and she works on the Brighton Pier as a tarot reader slash psychic in a booth that her mother originally had. Her mother died three years before this book takes place in a hit and run accident where she's like literally mown down in front of their house and nobody knows who did it or what happened or whatever. So Hal has been on her own since that happened. Did I already say that this is going to be a spoiler filled or was no, that, that was take? that was a last take. I was about to say this would be so spoilerish. You don't want to listen if you don't want to. You know, yeah, re- this is like a full blown recap review. So we are just uh, anticipate if you listen to this. You'll hear spoilers about the book. I still think it's worth reading because it's like kind of interesting. It's really beautiful. I I mean, I've read it twice now because I read it three weeks ago. And then last night when I was like, I should probably take notes about the plot (laughs) of this book. I went through it and like skimmed the entire book Mm -hmm. to kind of remind myself of what some of the beats were. Right. And she does like the central mystery. You're just kind of like, okay, I want to know what happens. Like I need to get to that point. And so sometimes the really beautiful atmospheric language she uses, like describing the place and the feeling and the energy and all that stuff can feel a little bit like floral and like, kind of, can we move forward? Like right, I really right. want to like figure out what the fuck is going on here. Right. Right. <laughs> Cause that's what like the first, like what 70 pages was the like actual setting up of, of the plot. And yeah. for me, like just the flowery language kind of prevented you kind of from moving on. Like, it was very atmospheric, but also at the same time, it took you out of that atmosphere that she was trying to create. Right. Mostly because I just wanted to be like, how, like, so Hal gets this email or this email, this letter <laughs> from a lawyer saying your grandmother has died and you've been bequeathed like a f- significant sum. You must attend this funeral in two days, blah, 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 blah. She's like, I don't know who this woman is. Like, I don't know this name. Like it, we have the same last name, but this can't possibly be true. And so the whole first 60 pages is kind of setting up how dire Hal's straits are to almost like justify her going to see if she can get some of this money from this family. And for me, I'm like, guys, it's a fucking book. I don't need, to, like, <laughs> of course she's going to go. I don't need all the justification. Right. That doesn't impact my enjoyment. Right. I didn't need a chapter and a half about this, the loan shark. Just give me, like, a paragraph that she had to, like, get <laughs> money, and I believe you, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you can tell us that her her reasons are just, and we have to believe you because we're the ones reading this book. Like, right. it's fine. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of, like, 
explaining of how dire her straits are. She isn't making ends meet. She doesn't have heating or food in her house, like all this stuff. And it's like, if I got a letter with somebody saying, you've been bequeathed money, you need to go to this funeral. I would be like, I'm there. Yeah. I'm there yesterday. Yeah. Sure. I'm just going to just go see what's going on and how I got mistaken for this granddaughter. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So she's been mistaken for this granddaughter. And then a lot of the first 70 pages are her just kind of talking about that. But so I think that the main part that we want to like focus on for this area is that she does do like that. She talks about tarot a lot because the first half she's like such a tarot skeptic, but she is doing these tarot readings for people professionally. Like that's her actual job. And she like full blown thinks it's all a crock of hooey, like whatever. She always kind of references her mom being like, you can't buy your own bullshit. Not in those words, but that idea um, and they're just really good cold readers. And her yeah. mom was too, where she can like be general enough that things connect with people, which to me, I'm like that. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit too much disdain at the beginning of the book about tarot, because I feel like that's okay. Like I don't have to be psychic to know if I'm connecting with somebody right. about something that they're experiencing. I'm not claiming that I am. Right. Well, and to me, it's like, <laughs> like it's just human empathy and human empathy. Isn't that? <laughs> yeah, <know>? exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Like you're allowed to feel like you're just trying to connect with somebody as a person and cards can be a way of helping you communicate things to people, but like bananas. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit very, it was very judgmental at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But so then the other thing is that it kind of goes back and forth. The first time that we see a journal entry from this woman, Maggie also happens in this area and Maggie, it's very clear is super into tarot. Mm -hmm. And so even in the first journal entry, which is from 1994, but the idea is that it was like basically before Hal was born are these journal entries. And she, is like recapping a reading that she did for herself that involves the lovers, which is a card that comes up a lot in this book. Mm-hmm. And then she has, so like in this reading that this woman Maggie is doing this mysterious woman, Maggie, that like, we're not given a lot of context for at the beginning. Um, she's doing a reading for herself and she gets the lovers and the fool. And there's a lot of reversals in this. So she gets the lovers and the fool and then justice reversed. And it kind of freaks her out. Yeah. And I was going to say that there are reversals read in this book. It's not just like just the straight up card that they read. And that was that was really interesting to kind of read along in the book as well. Just to kind of see the meanings because they come up quite frequently, if I remember correctly. So. Yeah, totally. And their, their cards are like really throughout because and I like that. She does such a good job. Ruth Ware gives, does such a good job of like explaining all the different variations of how you can interpret a card. Yes. So like in the lover section, she says, you know, the first card that represents the past, there was the lover's upright, which made me smile. It's often a mistake in tarot to take the most obvious reading of a card, which I was like, all right, girl. Okay. <laughs> but somehow here it felt right. In my deck, the card shows a naked man and woman intertwined, surrounded by flowers, his hand on her breast. And a glowing light from above them both. It's a card I love, both to look at and to draw. But the words that come with it aren't always positive. Lust, temptation, vulnerability, blah, 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 blah. But so because she's like going through this mysterious situation, this journeyer or this journaler, she's just seeing it as like the true man and woman together in love sort of idea. Yeah. 
So that's the first instance of tarot where there's like some card reading. And I thought it was really good. It's cool to see it kind of expressed that way. But it is weird because Hal is so sort of like not interested in it. And then Maggie, this journaler, is like so good and consistent and like interesting with her readings. Yes. Oh, and then like how so Hal uses like Facebook stalking. If she has an appointment, she'll like Facebook stalk the person that's made the appointment so she can like be more precise. And I'm just like. I don't know how necessary that is. I know. It's like, are your insecurities kind of confirming your skepticism? Like, that's kind of... Yeah. (laughs) That was the kind of feeling I got. (laughs) And then it just keeps going. Like, she meets more people on the pier, and they're all like, this is your chance. Go get that money, girl. And so it's more kind of justifying of her going to uh, the funeral to see what's going on. And when she did Um, get a reading from someone, they... um, Comes up, please. Not right now. Uh... (laughs) They um, gave her too much money, and then she donated all of that money to, like, a charity organization. I was just like, I don't understand the disconnect here. I mean, it was lucky because yeah. later, like, the loan shark came, and she would have had more cash that he would have taken or whatever. But I was just like, well, I don't understand why. Yeah, what's happening? And so that reading was, it was like a really skeptical client who comes in and is like well you're the psychic one shouldn't you already know what this is all about which i thought was really funny yeah like that's really funny to include um but the skeptic client get the, she does a spread that's the current situation the obstacle and the advice for the skeptical client and gets the fool the wheel reversed and the high priestess priestess but i thought that was also really interesting because her strategy how strategy for explaining the cards to people is really similar to what we do right which is like pointing out specific symbols, talking about kind of like how a lot of people could see it, asking for feedback about how you're interpreting it, blah, 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 blah. And that's like, and then because the that client starts out as such a skeptic and then ends up being such a like, she's like crying by the end of yeah. it. It's like, how can Hal still feel like it's all such bullshit when she's given this really good reading to this woman for whom it meant a lot, obviously. Yeah. yeah. It, without, like the woman came in with, you know, a total attitude and it still ended up being such a valuable reading for her. So I thought that that was like interesting because I know that people have had experiences like that with clients where the clients are kind of assholes about stuff. Right. But then the tarot ends up being totally right for her. So who knows? Yeah. It's one of those things. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then finally on page 54, she, so that's like, you know, this is only a four, like 350 page book. So like it takes so long for her to get to the point where she's like, okay, I'll go to Penzance. Like, it's like, girl, you don't need to justify this. Go get it. Go yeah. get that money. Yeah. I just, it made me laugh so hard. I was like, when I was looking at it again yesterday, so after having read the first 70 pages over and over and over again and never being able to get beyond that, uh-huh. was finding it tedious. Then, and because I, I like to give books like about 100 pages before I give up on them. But like sometimes if something is just not, catching me i'm like i don't know i'm so bored of her trying to justify this decision. right i wish that it would have um, kind of started while she was on the train and she was remembering back some of these details like and i think that that would have been strong yeah oh you fell down my crystal moved because my crystal is holding my <laughs> phone up and so it moved okay you're back <laughs> But yeah, I think that if it had started with her on the train thinking about how lonely and how broke and how desperate she was, I feel like that would have been just as effective as a beginning to the story. Like, I think that knowing that somebody is desperate in fiction is like, yeah, it wouldn't be a book if there wasn't desperation involved. You know, like nobody would tell the story if she wasn't (laughs) desperate. (laughs) 
Yeah. For, I just think, so, you know, as readers, we should believe, like, okay, you're in a desperate situation. I believe you. And so, you know, I don't need to have but an over I guess the problem is that maybe people who don't feel that way would, like, leave scathing reviews of, like, like protagonist had no motivation for doing these weird ass <laughs> things you know like there's probably no way to win but i yeah. do feel like if you're also interested in this book and get to like page 60 and are just like what is the point of, like what's happening here yeah just know that the plot picks up it's yes. not always just her going back and forth about whether or not she wants to go to this or, or to just listen money. to us like for this first 60 pages and then just skip ahead kanja will you please stop Wait, just a <laughs> Puppy motherhood. Okay, you keep going. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. I have wireless headset. While she's on the train, she starts researching this family, the Westaway family, and their house because their house, like, she had a postcard in from her mom that had a picture of the house, this big manor house on it. So she starts researching the family. Um, and she ruminates a lot about wealth disparity, basically. Like, how is it fair that these people got or had so much money and had these great experiences? I'm never going to fit in because I never had these experiences. And there's like kind of a lot of that where she's like really attaching a lot of meaning onto how happy and easy people's lives are with how much money she perceives them to have had. Right. So that was interesting too. So she gets there. Uh, she gets to Penzance, which is a real place, and she <laughs> buys herself a sandwich, which I thought was like the old. So that's such n- unnecessary information, but I do feel like for our like UK and Ireland dwelling friends, and maybe other places have this too, the ability to get like a totally fine sandwich at a gas station or train <laughs> station, just like prepackaged, pre-made, is something that the United States just doesn't really have. Like, if you want a sandwich, you have to go to a place and have them make you a sandwich. Yes. The pre-made sandwiches at gas stations might kill you. Yeah. Like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> In Korea, it's very, like, the the convenience store food is very, very good. Like, very, very See, good. So maybe okay. it's just the U.S. that blows at it. Because yeah. I every single time we've been to England or Ireland or Scotland, we're, like, you know, grabbing sandwiches to go and it's so easy and so affordable. And then here I'm like, if somebody handed me a sandwich from a gas station or from a convenience store, I'd be like, um, um I think I'm okay. Yeah. I think it's okay. <laughs> Thanks though. Appreciate it. Yeah. So she spends like a dollar. No, a dollar. No, that's like not five pounds. That. Maybe sign means no, she spends like two pounds oh, on two a pounds. sandwich. Okay. I'm like, ugh. It made me want a egg sandwich real bad. But anyway, so she basically takes a taxi to this graveyard for this um, funeral. And I can't believe I forgot the word funeral. <laughs> I'm like, you know, one of those buddies. So it's like freezing. She's feeling all bleak. She's ruminating even more about what family means, what wealth means, like her missing her mom, all of that sort of thing. And she's mostly interacting with just the attorney at this point. Yes. Like she's not really interacting with her uncles, even though she sees them and recognizes that like, oh, they're probably related to her. At the Okay. I almost feel like we should just say who... Uh, no, never mind. So she she has three uncles, and w- like she recognizes them. Like, oh, those are those three uncles. Yeah, and one of them, she's like, he's looking at me kind of strangely. He must not know that I'm related to him, or that I'm probably related to him, or whatever. Right? Because she scoped them out on Facebook beforehand, and was like, okay, so here are the three people, blah blah blah. blah. And so exactly, she kind of was able to detective it beforehand. 
Yeah, exactly. So she can recognize all of them. She, uh, the attorney is the one who brings her back to the house because they all have to go to this big house. Um, Mrs. What I should, what the hell is it called? It starts with a T and it means the magpie man. Tessanan? Tessanan? Tessanine? Something? I don't know. I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, pass? Okay, pass. I don't know what this word is, pass. Yeah, exactly. I tend to do that. Okay, trip. Trepassin. Okay. Trepas- Trepassin? Maybe. Who knows? There's I believe no way to you. Know. There's no way to know. Uh, <laughs> but so they all have to go back to Trepassin for like the reading of the will. And so she ends up in a car with the attorney because she took a cab to the funeral. And she does sort of like her cold reading skills to kind of ask leading questions to get more information about this woman that she's apparently the daughter of. That is the reason why she's inheriting money from Hester Westaway. So she's like... I know it starts with an M like I she's like trying to get all this information and she learns that the daughter's name is Maud, which I love. Yeah. Uh, and that she like kind of disappeared from this family's w- world a really long time ago. But whatever, the house is like a well-established, beautiful house. The family was really well known. There's like all this sort of stuff. But also the magpie situation is really out of control. And so it's kind of creepy because there's so many magpies all over the place. <laughs> Yeah. Which we've read, we, you and I both read based on Logan's suggestion, uh, cards made mirrors suggestion, the, what was it called? Magpie. Yeah. Magpie. The first one. Yeah. 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 So I, as I think I've even told the story on the podcast before, I had never seen a magpie until we were in Calgary for my cousin's wedding last summer. They're so pretty, but apparently they're like harbingers. (laughs) Of a lot of information in the way that, like, crows or ravens are, but oh. also people hate them more. Uh-huh. I didn't... <laughs> like, the the rhyme at the beginning of this that I've heard about ravens and crows is apparently actually about magpies. The uh, one is for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. Like, have you heard that rhyme before? No. And I was trying to figure out why that rhyme mattered because it just kind of came up once or twice and then never again. Like it had nothing to do with the secret. Sh- <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It, but because she's just, I think the main part is that it's to keep the magpies in your brain because they're used a lot as like a symbol Omen? of chaos. Okay. Like in a lot of situations where something chaotic happens, there's also chaos happening amongst the magpies. So it's a good way to. Yeah. redirect the reader's thoughts to be about the creepy birds in the creepy house rather than the creepy living people doing creepy ass shit. Yeah, because it was like, it was never like, oh, there are three magpies. And then, so then she found out a situation about a girl. It was never like the symbolism like that. Yeah. It was just like the poem yeah. was the beginning and then it was mentioned one more time. And I was like, uh, so am I supposed to be counting magpies? Like how many magpies pooped on his car? <laughs> I don't understand the magpie situation. I need some help here because I like the birds. Yeah, exactly. Because it's also mostly just like chaotic masses of magpies right uh okay so she gets to the house after having spent some time in the car with the attorney mr mr treswick and she gets a lot more information about kind of all of the people which is helpful for her to kind of continue this charade of pretending that she is related to the deceased Uh, and then it goes to another journal entry and immediately immediately i was like oh this girl's pregnant for sure oh yeah anytime somebody pukes in fiction it's to illustrate pregnancy (laughs) yes yes i was like oh she's a pregnant yeah and whenever somebody 
it gets mentioned as puking, I'm like, yeah, they're pregnant. But I was thinking, I was like, and it's probably with Hal, but we don't know that yet. But yes. <laughs> yes, but it is. You know that, like, there's some connection because this Maggie woman lives at Terpassen. Yes. And knows Maud, who now uh, Hal understands that Maud was actually Hester the Westerner's daughter. daughter after the conversation with the attorney. And this journal entry where she's puking, it's like very clear that Maud and Maggie are at least friends with each other. There's like not, it's not really clear what the actual connection is, but Maud knows that Maggie's pregnant. Yes. Okay. So they get to the house. Hal meets Mrs. Warren, who's the housekeeper. She gets put in this really creepy attic room that has like locks on the outside. And I did not understand windows. this living situation. I did not understand. <laughs> Somehow it's a giant manor house. It's taking place in 2014. You need to keep that in mind. Yeah. It's a giant manor house that has one single bathroom and still has creepy attic bedrooms that are like really institutional, don't have any carpet or whatever. Let's go over this family tree because I need to get this bedroom situation down. Okay. So we had... Harding, Harding. Harding. I almost said Harvey. Okay, let me try to get guess these names because we know I'm going to be really wrong. I'm really, really (laughs) curious. Now that I know you don't have your book to look at because we're video chatting, (laughs) I need to know. Okay. I need to know what you think these people's names are. (laughs) Okay. There's Harding. Harding has a wife named something like Trixie or Mixie or Mitzi or something like that. It's Mitzi. Okay, Mitzi. You nailed it. Okay. Mitzi, and they have like two kids. Yeah, I don't. The kids, I don't, I don't care. The boy's name. It's Kitty and something. Kitty and like Dylan or something. It's like two plain names. We don't really don't care because they're kind of inconsequential. Okay. Yeah. So there are four people in his family. The second son is Daniel. No. Abel. Alan. Abel. Abel. <laughs> it's like Alan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Al. Alan. And Alan has... No, Abel. (laughs) Okay, Abel, 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 Abel. But I know why you think that, because in, like, later on, when she's kind of going through picture books, all of the siblings go by their first initial or initial. So his name is, like, Abel something that starts with an L, and so they call him Al. Al, that's right. Okay, okay. Okay. (laughs) And he has a boyfriend named Edward. Yes. Okay. The third... And Edward is a doctor. Edward is a doctor. That smokes, which I thought was very yes. bad. Okay. Then. A lot of doctors smoke. It's really <laughs> I weird. know. I know. It's, I know it's a stress <laughs> thing, but at the same time, like, you know all the bad health benefits. Anyway, we're not, that's not what we're talking <laughs> about here. That's not a ad for not smoking and being healthy. Okay. And then the, the third was Ezra. Yeah, you nailed it. It's because it's a Bible name. That's why. Abel's a Bible name so too. Abel. But Abel's like a like a less <laughs> but Abel doesn't have a book named after him. Ezra has a whole entire book in the Old Testament. It's fine. Oh, see, I don't even know her. <laughs> okay, and then Ezra. I have to you. And then the housekeeper was Mrs. Warren. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Was there anyone else? Oh, and then Hal. Okay, so Hal had a like a small little room in the attic area. Yeah. And the two kids, I'm assuming, like, slept in the same, like, bedroom or different bedrooms. Like, it's move the kids. It's weird because the kids are, like, teens. So they, yeah. you could easily just say, like, go, you know, grab your phones. There's chargers up there. You can hang out in the attic room. Yeah. You don't need to put this long-lost daughter. But I think it's mostly because Mrs. Warren seems to really hate Hal. hmm Yes. Or at least, like, 
Yeah. I, I think hate is probably a strong word, but she at least doesn't like her. Yeah. And is like suspicious of her. So they put her in this creepy room. And then when she's in this creepy room, she's like obviously creeped out, but she starts looking at Maude Westaway, who is theoretically her mother based on this family tree that is resulting in her getting the money. Because obviously Hester Westaway thought that she was Maude's daughter and that's why she ended up getting money from the will. And are we going to say, like, she thinks that her mother is Maggie. Like, yeah. and Maggie is like a distant cousin. So she's like, she's related, but not like blood related. Like, But we directly. haven't gotten, even gotten to that point yet because she finds these journals when she goes back to Brighton later in the book. Well, like, I meant like by the picture. This yet. Like by the picture that Alan gave her. Oh, but yeah. Abel, she, yeah. Abel so she hasn't her. gotten the picture yet either. Okay, okay. But basically... So the, in the next part, the lawyer finally introduces her to her uncles, which is so weird because, like, they spent the whole funeral together and now I know. they're all in the same house, but it takes, like, a <laughs> while for them to be introduced. Harding literally has to sit down. The oldest brother has to sit down because he's so shocked. Abel, like, does a dramatic gasp. Like, he's like, <gasps> <laughs> And Ezra goes completely white as a sheet. And none of them knew, none of them knew who she was. Abel's like a total sweetheart. Like he's the only brother who's like, I'm so happy to meet you. I know. Like, welcome to the family. Like he's very, very, very adorable. He's so um, and super friendly. And Abel's the one who eventually gives her the picture that you're talking about. I think it happens in a couple of chapters. Yeah. Um, but then it goes back to a journal situation. And in the journal, you see a lot of how awful Hester Westaway was. She was like really, really terrible. Maude and Maggie both talk about how much they hate her. Um, and Maggie being an orphan is kind of like expanded upon. Like she lost both of her parents when she was in her teens and she moved into this house. Um, and she's like a distant cousin. Um, Maggie or Ma- Maude definitely knows that Maggie's pregnant, but the creepy room that, ha- that Hal is in was like Maggie's safe zone. Like it was the yeah. only part of the house where she could be alone, where she wasn't like scared of having to interact with her mean ass aunt and all of that stuff. Um, so that's kind of interesting because the room is so creepy, but it's also like something that they really need almost. Um, okay. So then they start the will reading and one of the brothers makes a joke about how he is mostly just shocked that their mom didn't donate all of her money to the Battersea (laughs) dog home. Which made me think of Cosmic Creeper, our friend T, because I'm like 95% sure that that's the organization that she adopted her cat from. Not the Battersea Dog Home specifically, but, but that organization thing with that name. So, which makes me now want to check it out. See, because I think that she like posted something raising money for it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, support Battersea and rescuing and rehoming animals. It's one of her link tree links. I love this, that. Like, <laughs> Battersea Animal Rescue Organization that's like mentioned by name in this book. <laughs> At least it's authentic. It's it's funny because then it, like we were joking that you know in the first recording we had a long conversation about how I didn't know that Penzance was a real place, but like we have actual friends who we talk to regularly who live you in live these areas. areas. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. It's so crazy. Um. Okay, so at the will reading, the lawyer says that each grandchild will get $10,000. So Harding's two kids each get, or 10,000 pounds, sorry, uh, will each get 10, 10K, except for Hal, who gets motherfucking everything else. Like the house, all of the other money, everything else goes to Hal. Um, and when that's explained to her, she faints. 
like full blown, just faints. Everyone's screaming and like, what the hell? Was she in her right mind when she wrote this will? None of this makes any sense. Like freaking out. But the weird thing is that the will mentions her Hal's name by name and address. So Hal has this moment of like, you know, I'm not Maude's daughter, but she has me listed specifically. It doesn't say Maude's daughter. It says Harriet Westaway at this address. And she's like, that's me. Like that is my address. Yeah. So it's like a little bit, she's kind of breaking down her barriers of feeling like just, she's a liar and starting to feel a little bit more comfortable with the idea of like accepting things. Mm -hmm. But she also thought, Oh, I'm, I only want the 10 K. Like I don't need the house. I don't need the rest of this bullshit. Right. And like (laughs) constantly there's like a, a voice in her mind, like, her mother being her mother essentially saying like don't believe the only the lies that you've told yourself basically back yeah. to like all the tarot tips that her mom has shared with her through the years essentially are coming back to kind of yeah re-help like her narrative and like don't believe what you've said everything you say you know this will be your downfall sort of stuff so exactly which is so interesting because again the journal writer does not seem like that much of a skeptic so you're as the reader thinking either like something went horribly wrong in this woman's life that turned her into such a skeptic to be teaching her daughter, like, don't believe your own bullshit or like what's going on here. Like just why, why does this personality feel so different? Right. Um, Okay. So anyway, it turns out that she's like really, really, really sick because she's not been eating. She hasn't been like taking care of herself because she had no money. So she's really sick. So even though she wants to leave because she still feels so iffy and uncomfortable, she can't now she has to stay because she's really sick. And Edward ends up, Abel's husband ends up uh, coming and giving her pills to, like, help her sleep. And it may- makes her pass all the way out. And the implication is almost that, like, he may have drugged her. That's what I was because thinking. Because she wakes up feeling super hungover with additional threatening text messages from her loan shark. And she is, like, feeling kind of unsafe because she thinks that maybe Edward drugged her. Yeah. Which I just kind of was like, I don't know why that would be the first thing that we jumped to, but I thought that too initially. I was like, yeah, maybe he well, because her. The, we find out that the room is kind of super creepy because I think the journal sort of indicated before this that the room itself, you know, has locks on the outside and bars yeah. on the windows. And so you're like, wait, is this family safe for her? Because we don't really know yeah. a lot about the family. And then for Edward to suddenly come in, he's like, take this ibuprofen. And the ibuprofen's not like labeled or anything. You're like, really? Like, yeah, but then you're like, why would they drug her? So, yeah, exactly. Like, what's the point here? It's sort of weird. Like the siblings weren't named in the will at all. So it's not like if she dies, it'll go to them. Right. right? I mean, wouldn't it go to, I mean, I don't know how a state law in England works, but (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there'd be some other methods. Technically it wasn't even like dealt with at that point. It was just kind of stated, but nothing had been sort of like official because remember they had to stay over the weekend. So it's kind of like, why kill her now? When she wakes up and she's like freezing and she feels hungover, she's going to find clothing and her tarot cards pop up and she like gets the page of swords. Like the page of swords just sort of explodes out of it. And so it doesn't really go that much into her definition of the page of swords, but I actually thought that it was kind of interesting given what we find out later, that one thing she'd need to be worried about would be the, like the youngest of these sort of like really rational, like, male figures. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then she goes to the window to close the window and that's when she finds help me etched into it and handwrite, like handwriting. Somebody wrote help me in the glass itself. 
So the room keeps her, gets her really freaked out and she like has to leave and stuff. But she's still saying to herself, like, just like mom said, don't fall for your bullshit. Like, don't fall for your superstitions. None of this is real. All of this is under your control. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, so she comes downstairs. Mrs. Warren is creepy as hell. Um, Warding, Harding runs into her when she's like, is leaving the library after going through a bunch of family photos. Cause she's still trying to collect information to figure out how she can convince them that she's actually Maude's daughter the most easily. She runs into Harding and he apologizes for like how he acted the day before. He's like, that was, you know, I shouldn't have acted that way. Like, well, we still have to talk to the attorneys. Like, right. don't worry. I'm sorry if I made you feel uncomfortable, all of yeah. that stuff. And Harding was kind of the most reluctant. He was like, she gets all this money. And Ezra was sort of like, I really don't care. I want to go back home. Let me just sign my papers. Yeah. And Alan was like, I had already kind of come to peace with the fact that he was never going to get anything or inherit yeah. anything. So that's kind of like the Abel, Abel full blown says, like, I didn't think she was going to oh, get yeah. anything yeah, to me Alan. no matter what. So <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You're fine. <laughs> Alan! <laughs> She hasn't, I know that just reminds me of that uh, voice over, I think it was a vine originally of the meerkats. Oh yes. Alan, 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 Alan. Alan, Alan. Alan. I'm going to write it. Yeah. They have another real, she has, they're like on their way to breakfast. She has another really weird interaction with Mrs. Warren, but Ezra is like incredibly charming and blah, 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 blah. There's clear, it's clear that like Ezra is kind of the golden boy, like, Mrs. Warren seems to be really fond of him or like at least amenable to his suggestions. Um, and he's the one that makes Hal feel the safest. Yeah. Which should be a red flag and a thriller. Yeah. <laughs> that's why, that's why I was so confused through half of it. Cause I was like, eh. mm. but nothing kind of, they were, they didn't ever really interact until like the, the car ride that comes later. And then, Yeah, so then after breakfast, Abel gives the picture that's like four young, beautiful, suntanned people by a lake. And she recognizes one of those women as her mother. And she's like, that's my mom. And they're like, oh, you're talking about Maggie. She was a distant cousin who came to live with us after her parents died, whatever. And the other people in the picture are Ezra, Maude, and Abel. And so it's like this wonderful picture that's making her feel more connected to the house, more connected to this family. They at least knew her mom, even though they, you know, she wasn't, she was, she isn't the person that they think she is, but they did know her mom. So she feels like really good and familiar about that. Um, then it goes back to the journal. There's like a lazy day and then a sexy moment with an unnamed man, which must be when she got pregnant. Oh no, because she already... Is it backdated? Maybe I wasn't looking carefully at the bat at the dates. Yeah. So that's backdated slightly. So that's must be when she got pregnant. Hester. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was going to re-say my line about it hasn't been since the great Gatsby that eyeball colors have mattered so much in a book. Yeah, exactly. Because that's another thing she's talking about, you know, dark eyes meeting blue eyes and all of these. Like, and you're like, and you only have like one like, picture to base. And so you're like, wait, who has the blue eyes and the dark eyes and the hazel eyes? What's, what's yeah, the eyeball situation? Exactly. How are these people connected with each other? I feel like we can kind of go through the next part a little bit quickly. Cause it's yeah, just, I think like, so. More creepiness. Like Mrs. Warren keeps being a fucking creep. Yeah. She like, like Hal finds her in her room and, uh, Mrs. Warren is like, oh, she was into those cards. So it's really clear that like 
Mrs. Warren knows a lot more than anyone else does. Like she yeah. knows more than Hal knows. She knows more than any of the siblings know. She knows more than the attorney knows, but she's being so cagey that it makes her look super creepy rather than helpful. Right. Um, but she, there's like also this whole entire portion where there's just a ton of Hal overhearing people talk. Yeah. Yeah. So like she overhears Harding talking to Mitzi about how he got this like final letter from his mom just a couple weeks before she died, where instead of signing it like your mother, he she signs it. What is it? Opre moi le deluge or something, which I took French for one year in seventh grade. And even I could come up with what that meant more quickly. <laughs> Hal has to like find somebody who speaks French. You know what a deluge is, right? Like that's yeah. a word in English too. Right. <laughs> she, I'm so like, basically you have your phone, just type it in your phone. <laughs> yeah. Google it. I don't know why. So she's like overhearing them talk about this, but basically yeah. it means like after me, the flood. And it's a quote from some revolutionary French era monarch who's basically saying like, once I'm gone, shit's going to get worse. Yeah. And so that kind of like sparks something off when later, like they end up not being able to solve all of these will issues right away because their attorney's busy, blah, 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 blah. And it basically forces them to stay for the whole weekend uh, rather than being able to resolve everything on this Friday. They have to then stay through the Monday, but everyone else, all the partners like Abel's boyfriend, and Harding's wife and children, they all have to leave because uh, of life stuff. Like, they can't yeah. be there for the whole weekend. And there's, like, reasons that the attorney isn't available to Tuesday. So there's, like, a lot of law stuff. But yeah. it's another chance for her to kind of engage with Ezra, hear more about the family. Um, and she's, like, feeling still so conflicted about whether or not she can belong with these people or not. Right. Um then it goes back to a journal entry where Maggie is realizing that she's never going to be a sibling to these people. Like they all love each other so much. She's still the outsider. So there's like a lot of reflections of that loneliness and like being surrounded by people who you're not connected with in the way that you hope to be connected with. So it's mm -hmm. kind of mirroring Hal's experience through the journals of Maggie. So, then Ezra finds out about the tarot, sees the picture. He, she's having all these, he's having all these weird facial interactions and Hal associates all of them with his grief over losing his twin sister. Like, because she just disappeared. No one knows what happens to her. So every single time something suspicious happens and he's like, goes white or is surprised or gets weird. She's always attributing it to him being sad his sister is gone. And as the reader, you're also seeing that, or at least I was. Like, I yeah. was falling for Ezra being, like, just a sad brother, really hook, line, and sinker. Hal's, like, telling everyone she doesn't want the money. They're, like, having all these other interactions. Uh, before the all the, like, loved ones leave, before, like, the weekend starts... She ends up reading for the family because Ezra kind of puts her in a position where she has to do readings for the family. Right. And she does one for her cousin, Kitty, who's Harding's daughter, about, like, love and backstabbing, <laughs> like, teenage shit. And right. it's, like, really cute. And they're just, like, doing a full Celtic cross um, really effectively. Yeah. I don't know. I, if, I, if we start doing Celtic crosses, I'm going to be so annoyed because well, we did a whole rant about them. Well, the thing is, is that, like, this got me reinterested back into the Celtic Cross, and the one that, the only one that I found that I liked was from Vendor Tarot. 
And that's because, like... Oh, is that the one that you did? Yes, yeah, the one that I found. Okay. It was from Vendor. And that's because, like, it's succinct. Everything makes sense. And it's okay. Like, it, everything kind of... There's, like, a better flow to it than the other Celtic cross, the historical, quote-unquote, Celtic cross. Yeah. You know, yeah, so... totally. I don't think it's something that I would use all the time, necessarily. But, uh, at least from the Vendor Tarot's perspective, I'm like, okay, I can see how this would be useful. That's awesome. I'm going to look so, at that one, too. Yeah. Uh, but so she talks, so yeah, in this section, she talks about the upright lovers and does a lot of the other, a lot of the additional, um, interpretations. So I actually kind of want to read part of it because oh, I yeah. thought it was really nice. I think I have. So, so yeah, uh, this card also means choice, the choice between right and wrong, the high road and the low, um, blah, 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 blah. Romantic love is just one element and it won't always lead you right. You must be careful not to let it dominate everything else in your life. Satisfaction from other sources, work or family, for example, is just as important and can bring you just as much happiness. Um, And so she kind of like pivots it to be because this is a teenage girl to be like, what it's saying is that you're you're surrounded by love and you'll always have love (laughs) in your life to kind of like appease the parents who are like, what are you talking about the lovers with my teenage daughter about? Yeah. And of course, she's like, oh, yeah, the lovers sort of. Yeah, exactly. And then Abel asks for a reading and she pulls a lot of the same cards, but it's like the lovers reversed and the 10 of swords and Abel like throws a huge fit Yeah, because it turns out that Edward had been sleeping with somebody for years and they like only found out about it like a year ago. So they're still kind of going through the recovery period and the relationship. And she feels like Abel must hate her now, which is important because she starts feeling really threatened by Abel kind of around this point. Yeah. Through the journal entries, we know that, like, Hester finds out that Maggie's pregnant and starts, like, basically beating and abusing her, locking her in the room, everything, to try to get her to tell her who the father is, and she just will not tell her. And so it becomes a really untenable situation through the journal entries where you're seeing this woman kind of, like, descending into a really unsafe situation because she won't disclose who the father of her unborn child is and so hester's like losing her absolute shit about it and she's not really safe anymore um ah i'm missing a note it must have not been important (laughs) (laughs) oh there's like more weird stuff where like like hal falls down the stairs and she thinks that basically mrs warren or abel like strung a string to make her fall Mm -hmm. so she's feeling really really unsafe and then it goes back to the unsafety of maggie and maggie talks about in her journal how she's going to burn all of the pages of her journal that mention the father's name because she knows that hester could easily stumble across that and find out her secret yeah i was kind of surprised that hester already didn't like ransack the room and get it like i was like that would be the first thing I feel like that's the first thing that an abusive caretaker would do is go take all, all your items away from you, take away your identity, essentially. And then like, yeah, cult leader style. Yeah. Okay. So then this, this is like when the, this is when it really got a little bit off the rails for me because I did not buy Mrs. Warren as the villain at all. No, but she keeps having these interactions where Mrs. Warren is being creepy. And in this point, she says, some stuff about how her mother was trash and like, you're just a little whore like her or whatever. And so, uh, Hal realizes that Mrs. Warren knows that Maggie was Hal's mom, not Maude. Yeah. 
But it's like, why didn't she say anything to anybody? Like she was alone in the house with, with Mrs. This is why I couldn't buy her as a villain because if it was just Mrs. Warren and Mrs. Westaway in the house together for years, none of their family interact with them ever. If Mrs. Warren knows that Maggie was the actual mother of Hal, why would we think that Hester wouldn't know that? Yeah. They're yeah. each other's only companions. Yeah. So it always felt like something was off with that. I just didn't buy her as a villain because I was like, and even when she says like, you shouldn't have come back. You need to leave, get out of here. It's like, none of that is saying like, I will hurt, hurt you. you. Yeah. All of that is saying you need to not be here. That's not yeah. the same. Yeah. For me, if she felt like more that Hal was causing trouble more than she was threatened by Hal, because to me, like yeah. she doesn't like to have, like, she's not cooking very well. She's, you know, just cleaning her own space. Essentially. She doesn't want yeah. to only take care of all these people. Like everyone, you know, and Hal's kind of like, making things harder for her in the long run. So get out, you know? Yeah. And I guess maybe she feels threatened because if Hal does end up with a house, then she might get rid of Mrs. Warren or whatever, but still, so I didn't still think that she was like a villain that was trying to hurt her. I never thought that. I just thought that she was just grumpy. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought she was a grumpy old lady. She's like described as walking with a cane and being really slow moving and just being a crab. And it's like, She's been living in this dusty old house with this one single woman for the last 40 years. Like, maybe she's just grumpy. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) Hal feels so threatened by Mrs. Warren that she leaves. She goes back to Brighton. She finds the journal. So this is when, like, that's kind of coming together. Yeah. And she deduces that Ed, Abel's boyfriend, is her father. Because there's, like, one instance of the name Ed being used to refer to somebody who was involved with all of it. Um. And so she like has it in her head that it was, there couldn't be anyone else named Ed in the world. It has to be Abel's husband, Ed, because <laughs> Abel got this horrible reading from her. Ed gave her these pills that she didn't know what they were and thinks might be poison. Um, but she realizes through all of this that she needs to go back to Penzance because she needs to figure out what happened to Maud. Because no matter what, nobody knows where Maud is at all. Like, even if people know, even if Mrs. Warren and Mrs. Westaway knew that Maggie was actually her mom, nobody knows what happened to Maud. So she realizes because Maggie references this other woman named Lizzie in one of the stories that maybe she could find Lizzie and figure out what happened to Maud. Yeah. I was just going to say, Lizzie was the housekeeper that went between, like, letters that were exchanged that she found. So she right, was exactly. in the house that kind of like witnessed Maggie and Maud and the whole situation. So because it's I mean it all comes out eventually but it turns out that like Maud went to college and Maggie was still locked in the room pregnant and so Maggie would give letters to Maud to Lizzie, Lizzie would post them and then it would all their mail would go through Lizzie. So Lizzie's this intermediary um and so Hal decides she needs to track her down to figure out what's going on. So she calls Harding to be like, I'm sorry I left. I'm coming back. And they have this whole family moment where Harding's like, honestly, really sweet. Like Mitzi was so worried. We were so worried that something had happened to you. Like we'll pick you. We'll, we'll send you the money to get back up here. We'll pick you up at the, at the train station and all of that. Abel picks her up and she says to Abel, like was Ed the one who took this picture because she thinks that the person who took the picture is her father. 
And Abel's like, I didn't even know Ed then. Like, there's no way that he was involved with this, blah, 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 blah. And for some reason, that still somehow is sparking Hal to think that Abel's lying. Yeah. Rather than that, she's just misinterpreting all of the information she has. Um, And when she gets back to the house, there's no light bulb in her room. Like, it's creepy as hell. She still thinks it must be uh, Mrs. Warren who's done it. So then she finds Lizzie because she has this letter from uh, Maggie to Maude that says, like, I am so scared. I can't be here anymore. Like, I'm terrified. I need to leave. Please come help me. Um, blah, 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 blah. And so she has Lizzie's address and goes to talk to Lizzie. And Lizzie's like this friendly woman who's like, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, both of them disappeared. I'm not sure what could have happened, but I worked there during this whole nightmare and Maude and Maggie disappeared about the same time. So you're like, what the fuck? Who are these people? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Okay, so then because it's just her and the uncles in the house, they all invite her downstairs for a drink when she gets back. She, like, knows that Maggie and Maude are somehow more connected in all this than she thought. And she tells her uncles over a drink that she thinks Maggie was her mom. And she realized it once they'd all met, but she didn't want to say anything because she was hoping that this family was real. And I liked that she was so vulnerable in that because I've talked about this before, but one of my huge pet peeves in fiction is when it's like such an easy, just have the conversation of like, I, I hoped that this would go better or I hoped that this would be different. Just be vulnerable with people. And in this moment where she's telling her uncles, like, I'm not Maude's daughter. I'm Maggie's daughter. I'm so sorry for all of this, but we can clear it up with the attorneys. Like I never meant to lie. I just was so hopeful that I'd have this family that I've never had. And I thought it was really great that she just was like, so wonderful. Yeah. Mrs. Warren is like, Oh yeah, I already knew. Like they're like, Oh, (laughs) did you know that this is actually our Maggie's daughter, not Ma's daughter. And Mrs. Warren's like, uh, yeah, you giant idiots. (laughs) And then this is when Mrs. Warren, they're like, all leaving the library or whatever. And Mrs. Warren is standing in Hal's way and says to Hal, get out. If you know what's good for you while you still can, which again, Hal perceives as a threat, which if somebody said, get out while you still can, I'd be like, you know, something that I don't know, but I wouldn't assume that that person was the person who was trying to kill me. Like she's like an old (laughs) lady who can't really move very well. What is she going to do to you? Poison you? You know, Well, she's going to keep tripping her down the stairs or something. Like there's all these little things that are happening in her room that she's associating with Mrs. Warren. And she full blown, when she hears that, she sees it as a threat. But even when I was reading it, when I read that, I was like, this is not a threat. Yes. Esther. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Why didn't they give her a different bedroom when she came back? Because there are less people in the house. (laughs) This is why I did. I was like, why is she in the same bedroom? I don't, yeah. that would have been the Why first thing the I changed. Bare bedroom? I know, I would like, ex- I'm like, excuse me, uh, my, my room does not have a light bulb anymore, and there's a lock on the outside. I don't feel safe. <laughs> Can I sleep on a, like, a, the couch in the study? Is that available? Yeah. Can I, I'll sleep on a couch. Go to Harding, who seems like the most fatherly. So the other thing is that yeah. Harding is way older than Ezra and Maude were. He's like 12 years older than they yeah. are. So, and he has these teenage kids. He seems so approachable. Like, He's the one who's like, my wife was worried about you. Go to Harding and be like, hey, do you mind if I sleep in the room that your kids slept in? I don't even need you to change the sheets. I really don't care. But there's like broken glass and no light bulb and locks on the outside of the door that I am sleeping in. So it'd be real cool and uncle <laughs> if you would just let me not sleep in this creepy dungeon room. <laughs> that was like the one thing I was like, 
girl, you went back and you got the same bedroom? What? Yeah. Or at least, like, or at least be like, Mrs. Warren, can you clear up my grandmother's bedroom because I can't sleep upstairs? Oh, yeah. What about Mrs. Westaway's bedroom? I know it's, like, that not... Would be empty. It would be... I mean, obviously it was empty because she didn't need it anymore. But I'm just yeah. saying, like, just... Just ask for there different bedrooms. There other options. Yes. It's a creepy there old has house. There to be other options. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I like, just had a bad rant about I that. Mean, <laughs> you, and also, like, maybe somebody has a sleeping bag in their trunk. You could just, like, literally sleep in a car. Like, Harding, <laughs> Harding brought everything, so it seems. So maybe there is a sleeping bag. But yeah, exactly. Like, this doesn't seem, like, being in the creepy danger room doesn't seem like that <laughs> necessary. The danger room. <laughs> yeah so she uh fa- oh this is when she falls down the store the stairs and for some reason when she falls down the stairs or like when all this bad stuff is happening to her she keeps having or she has a flash of the eight of swords in her mind which i thought was like not the best card to represent that because as we no. talk about all the time the eight of swords is all about how you think that you're in danger but you actually can have control over it like right it's all in your brain so in that way, she is having an Eight of Swords moment because all she has to do is go to Harding and say, like, hey, I'm feeling da- like I'm in danger. Can you help me? And maybe right. somebody would help. Right. But I guess maybe the thing is that she was raised without family. So maybe she doesn't trust that people would listen to her or care about her well, in that way. Like the That's thing all is, I can think of. The thing is that Harding, he didn't like Mrs. Warren at all. Like through the whole entire book, he hated Mrs. Warren. So if she was mis- yeah. say Mrs. Warren, go to Harding, who seems to hate yeah. her too. And just be like, I think she's she's being super creepy and saying some things like, or even just like, you know, no one did anyone hear like me fall down the stairs last night, like, or just kind of yeah. something. Like, I feel like just kind of just like sneakily saying something, but I was just like, okay, well, I guess this kind of helps <laughs> propel the story along. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing we have to remember that there needs to be something that inspires all of these actions to be made. People yeah. can't just be like, here are my fears. Can we do something about this? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so then she ends. The next day, she ends up walking around outside, and she finds this boathouse on a lake, and the boathouse has a sunken boat in like its little area, which she finds really creepy too. And she doesn't know why, but well, she's like creeped out by. And the boathouse was mentioned in the journals as being like the the spot where her mother and her father like met up, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, she knows totally. it. So she kind of was curious about its significance, but then when she entered in, it was kind of really super creepy. And it's just really born. creepy. Yeah. But all of it's so creepy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just like. It's cold and creepy. No, thank you. So then they go back to the lawyer's office. The lawyer's like, oh, shit, that's my bad. Like, I'm so sorry. I should have known that you weren't Maud's kid. Um, they still have some stuff that they need to, like, research. So nothing is really resolved with that. But on the way home, the brothers talk about how they've always had so many issues amongst themselves. Like, they just... There's a reason that none of the people have been back to that house in 20 years. Like, it's not just that Maud went missing. It's that all of them kind of have been like pitted against each other for their whole lives in some ways. So they never have had a very close relationship, which I think is mostly just to show again to how that like, even no matter what the circumstances, the family that you want, isn't always the family that you get. Yeah. Uh, And then they like still don't really have too many answers, but since they have to wait for the attorney to figure stuff out, they, she decides to go home and Ezra, all of them decide to go home. And Ezra is the one who takes her to the train station When they get to the train station, there's this crazy storm going on, though. So the train gets canceled. And thankfully, Ezra is still there to, like, pick her up and 
so that she's not just like trapped at this train station with no money. Um, and while they're driving around, cause he's like, Oh, I'll just drive you to Brighton. Like it's on my way because Ezra lives in France. And so he needs to get back across the channel anyway. So he's like, I'll just drop you off in Brighton. No big deal. And they end up stopping at, um, like a rest stop yeah. service station. Cause it's blizzarding. And she finally talks to Ezra about the picture. Like, do you know who my dad is? Like, all I have is this picture and he's being super weird, but she's like sharing a lot with him, like the journals, her suspicions, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. And he's like having all these ranges of emotion show on his face. And again, she's attributing all of those ranges of emotion to him being grief stricken about losing his sister, his twin sister. Ezra says that Abel was lying about Ed and he gets super, super angry about like, like about Hal asking about Edward and like, you know, Abel saying that they didn't know each other, which is like really convenient that he's like, no, Abel who's not here is just a liar. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that you, if you are already suspicious of this guy, you would notice is that he says, like, I feel so bad for you having to watch your mom get mowed, like mowed down in front of your house. And she's like, it strikes her a little bit strangely, but she's not totally sure why. But then later she realizes why. Um, but she still feels so sad for him. Like, yeah. she's falling for his stuff. Like, he's just going through grief, whatever. And they end up having to go back to the house because... Um, she, because it's too snowy, the roads are all closing, but while Ezra's driving her, she has a dream where she's drowning in the lake. Yeah. Which I was like, creepy. Yeah. Well done, Ruth. (laughs) Very creepy. Yes. Uh, so when they're back at the house, she pulls more cards and she gets the moon reversed. And that's kind of when she has the realization that the journal writer, so her, her mother, Maggie was so whimsical and everyone talks about Maude as being such a skeptic. And then she's thinking, like, how did my whimsical teenage mother go from writing these beautiful, loving, whimsical things to being such a skeptic? And so that's just kind of like a rumination that she has. It's sort of like, this is so weird. These people are so weird. Um, and then she goes back to the library, looks at more pictures, and realizes that this whole time, Maude was the woman who raised her. Yes. Dun dun dun! The eye colors better. <laughs> yeah, because the eye colors better. She can see these people more clearly. And this other picture of them as Maud, as like a young teen. Yeah, and she realizes that when she was looking at this picture and she was talking to Abel initially when he gave her the picture, he said, "Oh, that's Maggie." About Maggie. Yes. But she thought that it was about Maud. Like she was misunderstanding what Abel was saying. And her, the woman who raised her was actually Maude. So then you as the readers, like, how does that make any sense? Because Maggie was the one who was pregnant. Right. So what the fuck? And. But she knows from the journals that, or from Lizzie, that Maggie came back one last time to the house. And it was after that, that everything kind of like went awry. All the weird stuff happened. Yeah. So she pulls the picture, she pulls all of the pictures out again and she's looking at it and she's seeing that Maggie is staring at Ezra and Ezra's name is Ezra Daniel. That's why you said Daniel. Oh, that's why I said Daniel. And so in their family naming convention, he gets called Ed a lot. 
So her mother, her birth mother is Maggie, this distant cousin. Her birth father, she realizes, is Ezra. And Maud is the one who raised her. Because she was always associating her eye color with Maud, like, because her eyes are black. And so yeah. saying that. And then, um, so then it was just like, oh, wait, that's, that's why. If, yeah, I look like Maud because my dad is her twin sister. Or twin is brother. his twin sister. His, yes. <laughs> what is gender? It's fine. <laughs> it's a twin. It's a twin thing. Yeah. Yeah, so she thinks that she's getting her looks from who she's seeing in the picture as the woman who raised her, but she's actually getting her looks from that woman's twin brother because her mom is somebody completely different. Yeah. So she goes to ask Mrs. Warren because she's having all these realizations of like, Mrs. Warren knew this, I need more information. Like, what the hell happened to Maggie if Maude is the woman who raised me? Like, what's going on? So she walks into Mrs. Warren's creepy little space and she finds all of these framed pictures of Ezra, the golden child. Like he's that on was, every surface. That was legit the creepiest a, moment in the whole entire book. That was the, for real, that was the scariest moment of the book to me was somebody walking into a housekeeper's quarters and finding herself surrounded by pictures of one of the four children that this woman participated in the raising of. Like, what the hell? Uh, and while she's in that room, Ezra comes in and she kind of confronts him and Ezra tries to strangle her because she realizes like, what did you do to Maggie? Like what happened to Maggie? What did you do to her? And so he tries to strangle her. She knocks him over the head with a framed picture of himself, which made me laugh because (laughs) that is pretty poetic. And then she runs like she's trying to get out of the space she trips over mrs warren's body mrs warren has been dead for a while like at least a few days she's totally ice cold and she kind of realizes that ezra killed mrs warren and um they like have sort of the villain thing where like as she's running they're like he's like confessing a lot i know Which is always how villains work. Well, and when they were saying, like, a couple days ago, like, where's Mrs. Warren? Breakfast is not ready. I'm like, oh, she's dead. She's dead. Somebody needs to look at her. (laughs) Yeah, somebody (laughs) needs to go check her room. Mrs. Warren is dead. She's not being nosy. She's dead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it turns out, and so, yeah, so it turns out that Ezra, when Maggie came back one last time to be like, you, this is your daughter too. Like we, I can't afford to be on my own here. Like you need to help. She slaps Ezra because he's being a total monster. And then Ezra strangles her to death mm-hmm. and dumps her in the lake and then sinks that boat over her body to keep her body in place, which is so creepy. creepy. Yeah. So creepy. So anyway, he's chasing her. She goes out onto the lake. Cause there's this lip now that it's been blizzarding for like, an entire day. The lake is frozen over. She runs out onto the lake to get to an island in the middle of it. And Ezra comes chasing after her being totally creepy and awful. And the ice breaks under him and he sinks into the lake and drowns. Yep. Yay. He's gone. Yay. He's gone. And the whole entire book, like Ezra, she feels so much sympathy towards Ezra and so much connection towards Ezra. He's her biological father. Right. And he's like absolutely the monster the entire time. Oh yeah. yeah. Like he's the one who's like making her feel unsafe and breaking shit in her room and all of that stuff. So then that's the, I will say like the, the book 
the strangling part seemed very real and the after effects were oh, very yeah. real. Like I was like, yeah. I'm going to skip through this a little bit because it's a bit too close for home. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I thought I thought that this so like is long as much as the first 70 pages felt so slow to me. The last 70 pages were like so fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like when I got past those first 60 pages, I was the day that I finally like told Logan and Kylie, like, fine, I'll read it. God. Yeah. I finished the rest of the book in like four and a half hours because I could not stop reading. Yeah. It. So it's just like kind of a slow start. Like we were saying, like, I don't need to hear about all your motivation in real time. Like reflect on your motivation as you're doing other stuff. Like, or like, because I use it in conversation with somebody like by you on the train or to someone like, you know, like use that as a device to get your information across. I don't need to have like long tomes about it. That's just me. Yeah. I don't need to see her going to and from her sad job that she doesn't like. But anyway, so she wakes up in the hospital and Abel and Mitzi are both there. They bring her flowers. They bring her a cake. They apologize. Like, we should have known. Like, we knew we should have known that everyone was scared of him. We thought that it was that they just revered him. They thought he was the coolest. But it should have been more clear that everyone was terrified of him. Because, at like, at least Mrs. Warren knew what had happened. But right. most likely Hester Westaway knew also. And basically, it's like the most familial moment where she has this yeah. uncle... And her aunt who are there being like, we're here for you and we're so sorry and whatever you need. And there's this moment that like made me feel so choked up because the nurse is calling Abel and Mitzi like, okay, mom and dad, it's time for you to head out. And (laughs) she's like, I don't have like, I don't have a mom and dad. Like they're both dead. And they're like, well, do you have anyone who can pick you up? And she's like, no. I'm literally all by myself. And Mitzi's like, don't be ridiculous. Like, I'll be back tomorrow. You better have eaten that entire cake or else you'll have me to answer to, young lady. And they just, like, have this moment of, like, the normal siblings being like, you're one of us now. Like, right. you're, at, even if Maggie was your biological mother, you were raised by our sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our terrible, awful brother is your biological father. Right, right. <laughs> So they have this whole family moment that's like really, really, really sweet. And, and it felt then... very natural too. So I really like that. Yeah. Like you can kind of see why Mitzi and Abel would both feel so responsible, but also like, please don't let this color your view of who we are. Like right. we, we didn't have anything to do with it. They're, they're not defensive. They're like no. really owning up to it. And they're so like loving about yeah. it. Like yeah. they just want to be there with each other. Yeah. And it also feels like Abel's reading where he got the lovers reversed and the Ten of Swords. That doesn't, that didn't have to be about his relationship with Edward. That could also be about where he is now because his brother was about to betray him. Yeah. Like somebody that he really did love, somebody that he's like, you know, whatever. Like he's been betrayed not just by Edward and whatever he's projecting that on, but also his younger brother is trying to kill his niece. Yeah. Yeah. He's being backstabbed in a lot of ways. (laughs) And so then she kind of, like, is ruminating about how, like, the whole reason that Mrs. Westaway put her in the will by name and by location is because she wanted the truth to come out. She needed the truth of all of it to come out because it turns out that Hester Westaway and Maude Westaway had still been in communication with each other. Mm-hmm. And Hester even sent Maude money for... Uh, like, you know, for for Hal to be able to buy a computer for college and all of this stuff. And the reason that that Maude ends up being kit and killed in this driving accident is because Ezra finds out that 
she wants to tell Hal what her true parentage is because now she's an adult. So she doesn't have to be worried about Hal being taken away by like child services. Like, because technically Maude is not her guardian. Maude just kidnapped her basically because she, Maude knew that Maggie had been killed or something had happened. She's like, there's no way that she just left her baby. Mm -hmm. There must've been something horrible that happened. So she, for uh, Hal's entire childhood didn't want to tell her what was actually going on because she was scared that Ezra would get custody. Yeah. And she knew that Ezra was a monster. And so she had to hide it. And then when the minute, like right before Hal turns 18 and Maude was going to tell Hal what the story was, Ezra basically runs her down to kill her. And that's why he knew it must've been so awful to have your mom be like mowed down in front of you. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So much, so much. It's so good. (laughs) By the end, I was like, oh my God, this is so much information. So, so yeah, Ezra found the letter. Ezra knew blah, 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 blah. Um, The nurse brings her some tea. She talks about how sore her throat is from being strangled. And then she pulls one card and she pulls the world card. I thought this was such a precious moment. I love this this part. So First of all, I want to, I'm sure that if we Google that, we could find what deck Ruth yeah. is talking about. But she talks about the depiction of the world card. And she explains it about how, like, how beautiful, all the different meanings of it. And she talks about how when she was a little kid, she always called the world card the mother card. Because the car, the woman on the card reminded her so much of her mother. And I thought that that was really beautiful. So kind of by the end, all of her skepticism about tarot seems less significant because there is some part of her that's like still finding a lot of meaning in these cards. So even if she considers herself this like shuckster Facebook stalker to be able to do a better job of reading. Yeah. She like still can find so much support in the cards when she reads them for herself in some ways. Mm -hmm. And she's still like a 21 year old. Like she's still learning how to be. And because Maggie was the whimsical one and Maggie was not the one who raised her. The reason she has all this skepticism about tarot is because Maude took Maggie's card and just basically like kind of tried to assume some of her personality traits to keep everyone safe and to be the most mysterious and like untraceable being somebody who reads tarot on a boardwalk is way less easily traceable than somebody who's like working at a university or like something that's easy to find. Like she was safest being sort of on the outskirts of society And so that's why she did it. But that's why she didn't seem like she believed it because it wasn't really for her that she was doing that. It was for Hal that she was doing that. Yeah. The end. Yay. That's it. We did it. There's no more secrets. She has this family. She gets to have this house. She only almost got killed. Yeah. (laughs) And she has the truth. Yeah. And it was good. The use of tarot was really effective. I felt a little bit defensive that I thought that she was too skeptical about it. And I don't like reading about people thinking that tarot is bullshit because obviously I don't think that. Right. Well, (laughs) the thing was, is that it was like conveyed for her that it was that she thought it was bullshit. But it also was conveyed like simultaneously that she thought it was real as well. Like, yeah, it was that was it was like a really fine line of playing between them because she was always having to tell herself, don't get caught up in what oh, your own meanings. Don't get like because she pulled the page of swords 
pretty early. Like, I think almost yeah. before she left, I think. Like, it came out or flew out or something. I think she, yeah, she might have pulled it right at the very beginning. And then it also came up when she was, like, was, like the, in after the first night in the house. Right, yeah. right. So, like, but so she, it was, like, where she didn't, I think what she was more skeptical about was, like, she was kind of making more fun of other people believing it, even though she believed the same way. But she didn't see it yeah. that way, if it makes any sense. So I just think that tarot is such a good device to use in fiction when it's done well like this. Like, mm-hmm. using it as something that makes people think about what's going on in their lives is really great. I yeah. think that that's a super good use of it. So I liked it. I thought that it was really compelling. Yeah. I just think that those first 60 pages, man, you just have to <laughs> power through them. Yeah. But I loved, I mean, I was so transported the last like hundred pages. I just could not, I stayed up till like, like one reading this book. Yeah. Well, you, like I don't do that. I stayed up probably until that one reading and then woke up again, like a five thirty because of puppy Kamjo. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> Hey, the sun is shining. It's time to wake up. Sort of stuff. Yeah. I better get super involved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so I was like, "Uh, shut up. Let me read this book, you know, sort of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really, it but, was good. Yeah, it was great. I think I'll read more Ruth Ware. I know that a lot of our friends really love her. I know. I think Anna really liked the Cabin 10 one. I think that's the one that I remember Anna talking about recently-ish. Yeah. So, yeah. I'd read her again. I'd read her again. I liked it. And also I love, I want people to use tarot in this way where it's not like yeah. the death card and blah, you know, like I want it to be like more interesting. And it, I think that the the Raven boys ha- kind of have oh, the same yeah. thing where the use of tarot was like not scary and much more accurate and like informational. And so I right. really appreciate that. Yeah. We just need to get more romance with tarot cards <laughs> as we've, expressed a thousand times there are plenty of tarot readers in romance they just need to start using it in their plots we'd appreciate that i know Thank you very much i know and i want to just be like katie i love what you're doing katie robert i love what you're doing what you're doing is great but also please bring more tarot into your romance <laughs> thank you very much we love She's you so good at it i know yeah she is. exactly <laughs> thank you so much we love you forever thank you so much <laughs> So next week, we will be reviewing Playful Heart Tarot by Kitten Chops. We've used this on the podcast several times. Yeah, frequently. But we have not reviewed it yet. Yeah, it's like always right next to our computers. So next week, we will review Playful Heart. We will likely have a new mic for Esther so that this (laughs) doesn't happen. And, you know, that's our show. And I didn't make an outline for this one, so we're just going to wing it. I have no phone. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Esther can't bring hers up either. But we know what we say. Yeah. You can go to wildlytarot.com for our decks. We also have brand new pages with uh, resources for brand new readers. So if you're trying to get somebody into reading tarot, you can just direct them to our new to tarot page. If you're trying to get into Lenormand, you can just direct yourself to the new to Lenormand page. Um, you can buy Esther's Hilda Tarot via our website or either of our decks. You can give a once-off donation if you just want to support us in that way. Um, oh, we had a whole announcement, right? Because we have our new portrait. We talked oh, yeah. about that in our last episode. Yay. But we're going to have even more fun merch because we had a portrait of the two of us drawn up. We're fucking adorable. I didn't realize how badly I, I wanted know. to see an animated version of myself. <laughs> Um, I'm at least going to get mugs. Yes. So we'll come up with a way to do that today so that it'll be, this is our way of forcing ourselves to do to things do is to say when we record. <laughs> and then when Esther pushes the episode out, it must be done. It's, it's the in only the world. Way to avoid procrastination. <laughs> exactly. 
But it's okay because we already have a Redbubble account. We just don't have anything listed. So that'll be really easy for me to do today. So you can get merch with our cute ass portraits uh, and see what that looks like. If you go to Wildly Tarot Podcast on Instagram, you'll also see a bunch of other stuff there. That's where we post our favorite cards from each deck. Um, We also have a really great Facebook group. If you just search Wildly Tarot Podcast on Facebook. What else do we talk about? If you have any questions for the tarot. Rate and review us. We really like it when you make us yeah. feel good and tell your friends about Maybe us. Maybe don't make your rating about this episode. Though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just say they, they are persistent and push through despite yeah. the odds. <laughs> exactly. Look at us being so persistent. Thank I know. You, You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So that's our show. Go forth and tarot wildly this week. You we guys. love you. <laughs> <laughs>